Listeners be advised. This series contains conversations about mental health, trauma, sexual abuse, gun violence, and racism. My name is Tiffany Elliott. I am an asexual disabled woman who experiences mental health challenges. Tiffany Elliott spent her teen years believing she was broken and couldn't be fixed. I went and had my first hospitalization when I was 16, and my second followed shortly thereafter. The nurse said that I was turning into a regular frequent flyer, and I said, well, well, what does that mean, you know? He said, well, you know, frequent flyer is somebody who leaves for a while, but they always come back. As a teenager, Tiffany got used to people talking to her that way. Like her lot in life was to be a mental health patient. Not a student or a professional or a parent. Just a patient. Stagnant and relying on others. Forever. The first psychiatrist who saw me after I left the hospital took one look at me, did not ask my opinion, turned to his nurse and said, get me the paperwork for Social Security and I'll sign off on whatever she needs. When I was 19, I decided I wanted to go back to school. I wanted to do it, you know, pull myself up by those bootstraps and do it just like everybody else. And my social worker said I was being foolish. The more contact Tiffany had with the mental health system, the more she doubted herself. They were right when I said I was broken, that people like me are broken and we can't do any of the things that we dream of. That the best we can hope for is to be on Social Security because there's no way for us to support ourselves. We can't hold jobs. We can't go to school. We can't even have families. Tiffany didn't want to believe any of this. Yes, she'd been raised in an abusive home and her mental health diagnosis, including PTSD, were real. But she wanted to build a healthy, productive life. It was the system that had convinced her she couldn't. And who was she to argue? Because I had been in, you know, just these abusive situations so long, I didn't know what healthy looked like. From the California Pan-Ethnic Health Network, you're listening to A Right to Heal, a podcast about health equity in California. I'm your host, Akintunde Ahmad. Okay, so... Everything you've heard until now was Tiffany's reality at the time, including the succession of mental health professionals who fueled her belief that she was a lost cause. But they were all wrong. So let's start this podcast over. My name is Tiffany Elliott. I have been working in the mental health recovery field since 2007 in various roles, and I'm currently program manager for Painted Brains Medi-Cal Peer Support Specialist Certification Training Program. Few of those charged with Tiffany's care as a teenager would have expected her to become an advocate and a peer support mental health expert. She got here after a long series of starts, stops, detours, roadblocks, slips, and more starts, and might all have led nowhere if it weren't for chance encounters with a few people who encouraged her to transcend the old narrative of her life. But we'll get back to that. Today, as we zoom in closer on community-driven mental health services, we're talking about peer support and the role it plays in communities that have been underserved or inappropriately served by more traditional systems of care. I really implore you to bring stakeholders to the table and not just people who will agree with you, people who have the lived experience that is going to be impacted by these measures. That's Tiffany in Sacramento in August, addressing the Joint Assembly Health and Housing Committee. Like other advocates from around the state, 
She's concerned that the state's proposed modernization of the Mental Health Services Act, also known as the MHSA, could mean cutting some critical local mental health services, including peer support. We need to have a voice, and you're going to find better solutions that are going to work better with the money that we have if you invite us to the table. And please, there's no rush on this. We don't need to have all the answers tomorrow. Tiffany was far from the only peer support advocate addressing the committee that day. I'm a peer survivor of the battle waged against us living in the realm of mental health disability. The input of the leaders from the peer, BIPOC, and LGBTQIA communities were integral in crafting the MHSA. If you guys care about us and want peers, why aren't there more peers here on the panels? Why aren't there more black people? Our voices for the oldest peer-run advocacy organization in California. This is a one-sided initiative. The peer community was not involved, was not invited. I work with peers envisioning and engaging in recovery services. I was also once a participant of these PEI programs and these services. They have helped me in my recovery. I was a person who was sick for 10 plus years, not in any kind of services. And I had a peer support worker sign me up for Medi-Cal, give me services every day for five months. 38 years experience being emotionally distressed, eight years experience being a peer voice, sometimes paid, quite often unpaid. As I talk with advocates across California this year, Nearly everyone brought up peer support services and the need for more of them. The program that I manage is statewide. We serve people all the way from Modoc County down to San Diego. Tiffany works for The Painted Brain, a nonprofit based in Los Angeles that provides art therapy, disability services, and programs for people coming out of incarceration. Tiffany's job is to help people with mental health challenges become certified to help others. We train people who are at that place where they're ready to start giving back, you know, whether it's as a paid employee or as a volunteer, what they're looking to do is to provide those services. Once thought of as adjunct services, peer support programs are now considered critical components of primary mental health treatment across populations with high rates of PTSD and other diagnoses. Still, Tiffany says the field has a long way to go toward making peer support as accessible and effective as it could be. You know, that can be a really difficult thing if these peer-run organizations aren't able to secure that ongoing Medi-Cal funding. Everybody in the training team, we're all peers. We're all individuals with our own lived experience. Having organizations that are peer-run from the top down is kind of uncommon, especially when it comes to the training aspect, as far as I've seen. When you see organizations, the top side of the structure usually has, you know, the professionals, and then you have the peers who, unfortunately, a lot of times in California aren't paid really well. Tiffany wanted to be clear, by the way, that everything she said to us was her own viewpoint or opinion, and that she was not speaking for the painted brain. Inherent in the peer support model is a frontline workforce of people recovering from their own mental health challenges. They often don't have a lot of money, which means that just becoming a peer can be cost prohibitive, something Tiffany's organization is trying to address. The Medi-Cal Peer Support Specialist Certification exam and registration comes to $250. 
And that's if you pass the exam on the first go. And $250 for somebody, it could be the difference between eating for a month, maybe two, you know? And so it's a really big monetary commitment for people. So we offer full reimbursement for people to take the exam, in addition to the scholarship that provides the training to them for free. There's also the challenge of just making sure that organizations that need what we're offering know that they can get people through the class and to their exam without having to pay for the entire thing themselves because we have a grant with the Department of Healthcare Access and Information, and that's how we're able to provide the scholarships and the financial aid to support people getting their exams completed. It's common that once people have worked in peer support for a while, they want to improve and expand it and let others know the impact it has on people's lives. Tiffany broke all of that down for me. I don't know if there are particular moments that stand out where you're like, it's great to see a particular individual, you know, go through the cohort and then begin helping peers. But are there any moments that stand out? I think that the big moments of clarity come for me when I get those emails or or people call and tell me about how they've passed their exam or, you know, that they just got a job, they've been volunteering and now they're being paid for what they wanted to do or they get a promotion. You know, I I hear that and it just, it, it touches me, you know, because I remember when I went through my training and how much it changed my life. You mentioned being, you know, priced out of being able to serve in this industry. What are, you know, some of the other challenges that you all have faced doing this work? So I think that one big hurdle that a lot of organizations in California are facing right now is that there is this opportunity for people to become peer support specialists who can bill Medi-Cal. However, there are not a lot of counties in California that are opening opportunities for new organizations to become Medi-Cal billers. And so that's not something that just affects Painted Brain. It's something that affects a lot of different organizations throughout the state. It is an issue because there are a lot of organizations that would like to become able to build Medi-Cal, to expand peer-run services. That's another thing that's really important and can sometimes be swept under the rug. California is a little late to the game in terms of the movement of peer support and formalizing peer support to be part of that primary set of interventions for someone with a mental health need. That's Angela Vasquez, Policy Director at Children's Partnership in Los Angeles. It was only a couple of years ago the state passed a law that basically allowed it to create a certification, an official certifying process for peers. And that certification is required for peers to be able to bill our Medi-Cal system, our public insurance system. In her role at Children's Partnership, Angela takes on large systems that affect children all over the state, even in small places. 
attacking the systems through policy advocacy, through legislation, even breaking down many of the systems like the child welfare system or redesigning the way our healthcare system serves poor people, grinding against the wheel of poverty and racialized poverty that our country is built on. A key area of Angela's focus at the moment is peer support for children and youth. One of the things that we have found that young people have told us time and time again is that they want to talk about their mental health with people who look like them and with people who come from the communities that they are from, who share lived experiences with them. And so how we have sort of put that into a policy lens is that we need more peer support for young people, in particular in high schools and middle schools. She talks with policymakers and public administrators about all of this, but there's still some debate over how youth peer support should work. There are some state regulations and a lack of clarity from the federal government about whether or not young people can be certified to be peer support if you're under 18. I think that's actually a lesser problem than the political challenge, which is can and should kids be doing peer support for each other? I think, you know, young people are way more mature than we give them credit for. They are savvy and they care and they are already doing this work. Like in their relationships, in their peer relationships, they are already supporting each other through really tough things, through scary things. What they don't have is a network of adults who they can reach out to if things get dicey. And they don't have any formal training in doing that kind of support. And so a lot of the work that we have actually found that we need to do is educate policymakers. I think it's developmentally appropriate for young people to have peer relationships be their primary mode of social emotional development of their well-being. Angela's vision for youth peer support is exactly the kind of thing that was missing from Tiffany's life when she was a teenager. And Tiffany will tell you that she's only able to help her clients now because she used to be right where they are. I had a very difficult childhood. There was a lot of abuse in various forms. And I had a, a lot of really difficult things that happened. I was just struggling so much with flashbacks and nightmares and night terrors. And I had several suicide attempts. And when I was 18, one of those landed me in the hospital. And while I was there, my mother kicked me out of the house. And so I went back to school and got into an associate's program. And I transferred to a real university. I thought, I'm doing it. I'm doing it. i started having all the flashbacks again, all the nightmares, and ended up losing my part-time job, failing my classes at university, and having to take a retroactive academic withdrawal, which thankfully one of my professors was gracious enough to recommend. And so I got on Social Security. My case was so strong, it got through on the first try. And I was just languishing. I didn't have anything to do in the day, no reason to get out of bed. And I started calling people up because being on Social Security is just so boring. There is only so much Judge Judy a person can watch. And so I called up a friend who ran this little nonprofit. I, you know, received services there when I was 18. And she picks up, she says, 
Oh, Tiffany, Tiffany, I'm so glad you called. Listen, there's this class. It's like a college-level class. It's for employment, and you just have to go. And I'm thinking, she has no idea that I'm too broken, that I can't do any of these things, that all those possibilities are cut off for me. But I didn't want to break her poor little misguided heart. So I thought, I'll go to that first day of class, and then I can say it. It wasn't for me. And that class was the first time I saw somebody with mental health challenges who, just like me, had been on Social Security, had been struggling the same way, had had suicide attempts, had, you know, been told that Social Security was the only thing that he could do. But he came through it and and he was working, wasn't just working, he was thriving. He enjoyed his life and his job. And he looked into my life and said, I did it and I know that you can too. And your story is going to help change people's lives. Within a year, Tiffany started volunteering for the nonprofit that provided the class, then became a full-time staff member. And I went back to school, got my bachelor's, got my master's fine arts in creative writing. Everybody assumes that I must have a master's in a mental health-related field, but I went back because I am a poet, I love writing, and now I'm a program manager with Painted Brain. I am the program manager for the Medi-Cal Peer Support Specialist Certification Training, which provides trainings like the one that I took so that people can provide services as individuals who've experienced mental health and or substance use challenges to other people who've experienced those, as well as parents and caregivers supporting other parents and caregivers and family members. With the relatively new peer certification process playing out in different ways in different counties, and changes potentially coming to the MHSA, Tiffany's eyes are all over what's happening across California. And could you speak a little bit to this question? I'm wondering, do you think that the state and county leaders understand how crucial peer support is to mental health treatment? And if not, what do you think they're missing? I think that there are some that do. I remember Jerry Wingard was the director of mental health at Riverside County back when I first got certified. And I remember, these weren't his exact words, it was a long time ago. He stood up in a mental health board meeting and basically told everybody, I know that you're uncomfortable having clients come in and work alongside you, but this is the direction we're going. And if you can't find some comfortability with it, then this isn't the county for you. And it was like a breath of fresh air because he understood the power of what we could offer. And so there are are a lot of changes that are coming. And I hope that people at the state level understand the importance of what we're doing because we've become a really integral part of the mental health systems and behavioral health systems where we have worked. And I can't imagine the system going back to where it was before. Thanks for listening today. Coming up... When he was diagnosed with cancer, I had to interpret for him his second diagnosis that said, you only have less than a year. So I had to tell my dad that, you know, with oncologists there, my mother who does not speak English, translate to them, and me still as a daughter, kind of grapple with that information and translate it to him. This resonates with a lot of different people as well. We shouldn't be put in that position. On the next episode of A Right to Heal. 
A Right to Heal is a production of Studio To Be Seattle for the California Panethnic Health Network. The series is produced by Akintunde Ahmad, Trey Bundy, and Chloe Behrens. Trey Bundy is our editor. Mixing and sound design by Alec Cowan. Original music by Elena Penderhughes. Carolina Valle and Mihe Jung Lozano are executive producers for the California Panethnic Health Network. Joaquin Alvarado is executive producer for Studio To Be Seattle. Mihe Jung Lozano and Carolina Valle are executive producers for CPIN. See you next time.